Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. It's Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's been a while since I said that. We recorded so many great shows at uh, Broadband Communities and then uh, the... Um, the WAPUDA, the Washington Public Utility District Association uh, meetings that uh, just we're kind of cruising on those. But uh, it's good to be back and especially back talking about some topical stuff with Sean Gonsalves. Welcome back. All right. Well, thank you. You said that with a lot of energy. Yeah, man, I got I, I biked like 31 miles this morning at a brisk pace. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm looking forward to lunch, you know, so it's all good. How long does it take you to do 31 miles? It was like uh, two hours and 20 minutes because there's some stoplights and things like that. Kind of annoying. So I, I, depending on which, whether I believe my watch or my phone, I average a little more, a little less than 15 miles an hour, which is not great for people that do serious biking. And wasn't Rye telling us that uh, he's bored with biking? Yeah, he said biking super boring. I tell you what, I did two hours, 20 minutes. And if I could, if I was able to run, if I didn't have these decrepit ankles um, that have given me constant pain for 18 years, uh, I'd run too, because I could have burned that many calories in probably an hour rather than two hours and 20 minutes. So uh, I'm with him. Uh, Sean, you got a new title. What's your new title? Associate Director for Communications for the CBN team. Sounds good. I like it. It does. It's not a promotion, though. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a promotion, but it feels like one, and it um, it rolls off the tongue a lot smoother. We renamed our positions because the old titles weren't sufficiently grandiose for the the kind of uh, skill that y'all bring to them. I'll take it. Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, three different stories, uh, and I think we're going sort of short, medium, long on our takes on them. So we're going to start off talking a little bit about Bountiful Utah. Uh, talked about this briefly on the Connect This show um, that we recorded last week as you're listening to this. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about institutional networks and Fairhaven in Massachusetts is doing something cool, but also just led me to think it might be useful to talk a little bit about the history of institutional networks and kind of messed up incentives. And then we're going to talk about uh, this really great story in the Daily Yonder about Maine, uh, which uh, where basically the argument is, is that public dollars should be used for public networks and didn't strike me as altogether crazy. So I thought we'd talk about that a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Bountiful Utah. So the so it's a suburb of Salt Lake City, and they have been, of course, like many cities that are looking at municipal broadband, have studied this carefully over the past several years, really spurred on by the pandemic. And then at the end of May, uh, they decided to move forward and build an open access fiber network. Uh, and by uh, the, the city council unanimously approved the issuance of $48 million in bonds that will pay for network construction. Last uh, November, they issued an RFP. Utopia Fiber ended up winning the bid, and they are working with Utopia Fiber to build this open access fiber network. And everything was humming along, and everybody's excited. And lo and behold, this AstroTurf campaign pops up called Gather Utah, where apparently... You know, they're doing a lot of underhanded things, like even making it seem like they may represent the city. And they're gathering signatures for a petition uh, with the goal of um, stopping the project. And um, it's, you know, this is something that's spearheaded by the Utah Taxpayers Association, which, you know, their annual, I think their annual conference is funded by Comcast and CenturyLink. So, you know, we kind of know about uh, these taxpayer associations in, in different states and kind of their relationship with some of these, 
you know, monopoly um, providers. Um, and, and here they are uh, trying to uh, gum up the works there in Bountiful. I'm waiting for the press release from the Utah Taxpayer Association that celebrates the Spanish Fork Municipal Fiber Network because uh, that is saving taxpayers a bunch of money in Spanish Fork. It's like 80% of the community uses it. Uh, it generates so much revenue that they put some of that revenue back into the city budget. And that's money that doesn't have to come from taxes. Uh, it's a win for the taxpayers. And so do you think the Utah Taxpayer Association, which cares about taxpayers first and foremost, do you think that they would celebrate that project? Uh, no. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and like what would come first, them celebrating that project or them actually saying, Hey, because we we care about taxpayers, we also have a problem with billions of dollars going to these mega corporations, uh, uh, billions of tax dollars. They never seem to be concerned with 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 the funds that that are funneled that way. Yeah. So I think we're going to talk about this more in a in a future show in depth. But we wanted to give people a taste. Um, there's some interesting parts of the Bountiful project that um, that are quite interesting in terms of uh, just the difference. Uh, it's a slightly different project in the Utopia footprint than than the other Utopia projects. And uh, but we are going to talk more about that there. We did have uh, Kim McKinley, uh, who's with Utopia. Um, she spoke about that on the Connect This show. I think it was episode 75 that we just recorded. Uh, so people can get some more content there. But uh, we are going to move on to Fairhaven, uh, Fairhaven, Massachusetts. This is a, this is a, an interesting discussion. Uh, they're one of many towns in Massachusetts. Uh, I feel like that has recognized that they should make some investments into themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fairhaven is one of about two dozen communities um, in Massachusetts um, who are frankly just sick of Comcast and their, resi- their residents are clamoring for a choice competition. And Fairhaven is one of those towns. And so one of the selectmen in Fairhaven, Bob, and I'm going to probably mess his last name up, Espindola, I believe is how you pronounce it. He is the uh, founder of the Mass Broadband Coalition, and they've been meeting monthly since I think about the beginning of the year, maybe the end of last year. It's, it's an informal group. All of them have in common a desire to see competition. Um, many of them have interest in building their own networks, but are thinking that um, there may not be a lot of grant money for that. So they're very much now looking into public-private partnerships and you know what that might hold for these communities. But in Fairhaven, as I was talking to Bob about Mass Broadband Coalition, we, we talked a little bit about what was going on in Fairhaven. And so in 2020, when the town was negotiating with Comcast, their you know the franchise agreement, the town officials were able to negotiate what they call a capital fee. Um, which um, I think was around 300,000 or so. And then they put in some matching funds and that helped the town build a municipal fiber loop that's now serving as the town's institutional network. Um, So they own this network, which in many instances, I think institutional networks are very often not owned by the towns or, or, or the municipalities where they're built. So Fairhaven is in a pretty good situation there because now that they've got this fiber loop that's serving town, you know, town facilities and what have you. Yeah. Police, fire, probably the schools, libraries, city, right. Hall, uh, right. water utility, if they have that all that sort of stuff. So they got a, they got a $250,000 grant from the, the state's municipal fiber grant program. It's a, I think it's a pretty small program, but they did get 250,000, which they want to use to um, extend the network um, to the town's housing authority. So that's something that they're looking to do this fall. Last I talked to him about this was probably a couple of months ago. Um, so I believe that's still 
they're still looking at that as they're contemplating whether or not they want to create a municipal light plant, which in Massachusetts, it's like a, you know, a telecommunication utility. Um, it, it puts you in a position to, to, to build a municipal network if, if a municipality wanted to do that. But right now they're just sort of trying to figure out the landscape, particularly, you know, how, how something like that could be financed in terms of like building out a town wide fiber network. Yeah. And I think this is what made me want to talk a little bit about institutional networks. And, um, you know, you might think there would be many more of these that are operating around the country because often the single biggest telecommunications like uh, bill payer, uh, which is to say the entity that pays more in telecommunications costs than any other entity in a city or a town is often the government. Uh, you know, you got many different locations with high capacity needs. And so historically major source. And, you know, you might ask that question of like, why are we paying someone else to do this, especially if we're paying so much more? I mean, when Martin County, uh, Florida went through this, uh, they found that like, basically building and operating their network over like 20 years would be um, about the same cost as like paying uh, the incumbent cable company to do it for two years. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's just, um, it, and it comes down to this thing of like, you know, like a, you have the benefit of, of being able to put very high capacity connections on circuits. If you have a fiber network, you know, um, you could be paying for 10 megabits and you got to pay more for 100 megabits. You got to pay more for a gigabit. Mm -hmm. You pay that cost each month. If you own the network, you know, you put in the equipment and then you got to pay the electricity to run it. You got to set money aside for fixing it when it breaks or for upgrades and things like that. But there's not a lot of ongoing costs typically. And in fact, when I talked with uh, years ago, I spoke with um, the St. Vrain School District, St. Vrain Valley School District out there in, in Longmont, because um, they had previously worked with a dark fiber provider for services. And then they decided to combine that and some CenturyLink circuits that they had and, uh, and just run and operate their own network. And I said, well, how much more you know, personnel time do you have? You have like another FTE that has to be in charge of running this network. And the CIO laughed and he said, actually, it's less. And I said, how could it possibly be less? And he said, because when things go wrong, we have to wait on hold for like the provider to get back to us because like, there's not like a hotline, right? It's not like, mm -hmm. it's not like Reagan and Gorbachev. <laughs> like, right, right, right. You just pick the up the phone and there's like the Maytag <laughs> man sitting there, right? Like, and so, uh, and so they're like, yeah, we had like, when we had outages, we have a guy sitting on hold for an hour waiting for like to find out what's going on. Now the network pretty much runs itself once it's set up and going and uh, something goes wrong. We can fix it quickly. It's usually not that complicated. So that's just to say, why don't we see more cities operating their own networks? Well, I think it gets into the legacy of the cable television systems, uh, which is that uh, when they gave franchises, many of which were exclusive, but um, in uh, prior to 1992, there were many exclusive cable franchises. Mm. And then uh, after 1992, that became illegal. So no city can give an exclusive franchise to a cable company to build a network. But then they wanted goodies from the cable companies, right? right. Uh, and, uh, and 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 that's legitimate, right? You're um, and this gets into the whole theory of the like right like 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 funding like the public access channel and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So public mm -hmm. access, you know. Because like the cable company, right? Like without the franchise, 
which allows the cable company to build in the right of way as long as they have permits uh, without negotiating with every landowner. Otherwise, it would be like they come to my front door and be like, hey, can we put a pole in your yard? And I say no. And they go to my neighbor and be like, can we put a pole in your yard? And they'd be like, no. You know, like, <laughs> we wouldn't have any telecommunications if we did it that way. So we have this concept of the right of way. And so the city needs to get something good in return for negotiating that. And so whether that's like uh, a fee that it charges, which then does get passed through. I mean, I feel like people always want to point that out. But like so, you know, subscribers end up paying for it. But nonetheless, one of the goodies came to be an institutional network saying to the local government, you guys are too dumb to do this, but we will set up the ability for you to run this network between your buildings and this and that. And we won't even charge you for it. And so that's the way it was for a while. And then um, and I saw it like, particularly in like California and several places where it was often Comcast um, in like the late 90s, mid 2000s. There was this transition where these are typically 10 year deals. And as they were coming up, Comcast and other cable companies were starting to say, all right, well, we need you to start paying for this now. This is something that is, you know, it's difficult for us to provide. And, and you just get into the what I think is the worst of all worlds. The city didn't really have an incentive to demand a network that would meet their needs because they're getting it for free. And the cable company didn't want to provide their high quality service or maintain it at the same level because they weren't making much revenue from it. Mm-hmm. And so you have this thing that actually disincentivizes the kind of networks we, we need for local government. And so, you know, if you go back to like, like 2008 through 2012, you'll find a lot of local governments complaining about the lack of high quality service, like within city hall and things like that. Uh, and so uh, fortunately, I feel like the cable company started asking for so much that more towns like Fairhaven started building their own networks. But we still don't have that legacy of the inability to know what that does. Right. Many cities and towns don't have a person that knows what it would take to build and operate a network. It's not as complex as it used to be. It's not electricity. Like, you know, it's not easy, but like it's within the it's within the capabilities of any town keeping water healthy and clean and like mm-hmm. not having lead in it is far more complicated <laughs> than uh than uh telecommunications and i feel like yeah yeah and way yeah. more expensive like i mean i just i don't want to say that any anyone has an easy job least of all the telecom folks but like the water systems are more complicated and cities have figured out how to handle that and most of them do a really good job of it now i think i know the answer to this question but let me ask you um so fair you know so fairhaven they're 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 looking to essentially use their, you know, municipal fiber loop as the backbone for a potential, you know, extending that in serving other parts of the town, first the housing authority and potentially building out fiber to the rest of the town, but they own the network. It's theirs. Has there ever been an instance where a a cable company owns the institutional network and allows for a town to use that as the backbone and probably there's probably been one or two. <laughs> but and most of the times that's not what happens. So Often, this is what happened in Santa Monica, which we wrote about many years ago and remains one of the better stories of how a, a city can go about getting into this business uh, in a reasonable way. Um, and so uh, they originally had back in the Adelphia days before Adelphia went uh, bankrupt, one of the many cable companies that went bankrupt because this doesn't, you know, whenever people talk about how public networks suck and and they they struggle, they, they, you know, it's not a big issue about like, you know, the CenturyLink guys who were in jail, the Quest guys who were in jail or the bank networks that went bankrupt. But Adelphia, before it went, was run into the ground by terrible management, it uh, built a network for Sa- uh, Santa Monica um, as part of the franchise agreement. And so Santa Monica owned the network, but they got it a sweet deal. 
and they agreed never to put commercial traffic ac across it. So when Santa Monica decided to expand that network and then try to make, and they wanted to have a network that would allow them to connect, you know, movie studios, businesses that wanted dark fiber and things like that, they literally in some areas put new fiber down next to their old fiber that they had to like open the ground again or, or, or wow. do directional boring to put in a new network next to the old one because they did not have the legal right to put non-public traffic across it or, you know, commercial traffic or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing is that many cities actually have a network that they are using, whether they own it or not, there is a restriction on it. It's often called conditioning. It is conditioned that they cannot use it for commercial traffic. So um, in the case of smart cities uh, where they've been very forward thinking, they have not accepted those agreements or over time, they've used other opportunities to build new links that were not conditioned around those areas. And this is something we'll see again with public-private partnerships, where in a public-private partnership, if you're working with someone, something that you should negotiate is some number of fibers in key areas. Mm. And the partner will say, okay, we'll give those to you as part of this partnership, but you have to agree to never compete with us. And if cities are smart, if, if they accept that, there will be a time limit. Never is a terrible thing, right? If you look at the history of the railroads, like the whole like until the the heat death of the universe is not a good, <laughs> it's not a good end date. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I would just say there's a number of tips in there for folks, but, um, but definitely uh, as you're negotiating these things, you want to, at the, if you're going to accept bad terms, put an end date on them so that, you know, in the mm -hmm. future, because one of the things you might want to do with an INET, if you know, sure, towns don't want to go out and build a network to connect residents and deal with all that. Cool. But at the same time, they have uh, a uh, they might have a desire to connect a business park or an industrial mm -hmm. area that they're expanding to this part of town. And they want to make sure there's, they want to, they can lure in some big firms, right? I mean, so many cases of this. And uh, so you want to be able to use it for those sorts of circumstances, even if you don't have any ambitions of ever being an ISP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that makes total sense. And I think, you know, so, something you just said right there, um, town officials or city officials know this, um, I'm sure, but um in talking to folks, sometimes they don't really sometimes think about how businesses choose where they're going to locate or relocate and how how big a part of the equation in that decision telecommunication infrastructure is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see it, you, you hear it anecdotally quite a bit, um, but I don't know that it's 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 well appreciated beyond, you know, the confines of like, you know, a couple of folks, you know, maybe a mayor who hears, you know, from folks, you know, on a trip. Right. And it, it, it may not be enough to just know that there is fiber, dark fiber, lit fiber, whatever, you know, uh, whether it's AT&T or whether it is a municipality or a county or something like that. Uh, the business might actually say we want two different paths. Right. We want to make sure that like in the event of some uh, fiber seeking backhoe accident that we have a different path. They want that redundancy. If we have an hour of downtime, it's going to cost us, you know, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for our business or something like that. You know, and so we just can't have that. So, yeah, fiber is a huge issue and the ability to have it be reliable, potentially through different providers that are in diverse paths uh, can be really important, I think. So, Maine, I'm getting back up into a little, yeah. a little further away from you, but uh, in that New England. Not too area. far, but yeah. Yeah. Give me the scoop. So what is going on in Maine? Oh, man, so much is going on. In yes. Maine. <laughs> what is one thing that's going on in Maine that we're going to talk about that we agreed to 15 minutes ago? Right. <laughs> 
Well, one thing that's going on in Maine, of course, is that, you know, just to sort of set the table, Maine is one of the handful of states that is really taking, um, is putting community broadband sort of front and center in terms of solving the connectivity issues there. And one of the ways in which they're doing that is by allowing for the creation, similar to Vermont with the communication union districts, but in, in, in Maine, they call them what is it? It's a bud. Be uh, the broadband utility. Broad, broadband utility district, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's good. It's so smart. Right. And so there's this uh, Waldo uh, Broadband Corporation, which is made up of five volunteer directors. It's a nonprofit. Southwestern Waldo Broadband Coalition is uh, yeah. what I'm seeing here. Yes. And it's a, uh, I think it's what about, it's not too far from Augusta. Yeah, I was just, I suddenly got caught in a Monty Python joke about how like there was the Waldo Broadband Coalition and then they splintered and now you've got the Southwestern <laughs> one, the South. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and, and so it, it, it's an extremely rural area. You're talking about, I don't know how many towns are part of the group off the, off the top of my head. I don't remember, but, we're, but the towns who are members of the, this coalition or this utility district, uh, the, the, the population average is something like 31 residents per square mile. So mm-hmm. it gives you kind of a sense of how spread out folks are. That's East coast rural. It's uh, not, uh, you know, Midwest or, or sorry, West of the Mississippi rural, <laughs> but, but for the standards of the East of the Mississippi, pretty rural. Pretty rural. Yes. Um, and so um, they have uh, in, in, in late February, they got a conditional $11 million grant from um so that they could use that if they could come up with a $4.6 million match uh, to build out fiber um, to, to the member towns. So the Daily Yonder wrote a really good piece about that effort, but but it wasn't so much about the technical aspects of it or, or what have you. It was more about the bipartisan feeling that's that exists. And this, it's, this isn't just in Maine. I think it's elsewhere, but that public tax dollars that 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 these grant dollars um you know come from should be given to public projects to locally owned uh public you know publicly owned locally controlled networks and so i really like this uh, it, it it's one of the best leads that i've read in a while i like it yeah let's just give credit i mean you're a former reporter you're going to give credit to the daily yonder i think we should give credit to carolyn campbell who wrote yes. the article and uh the title of it was small main towns say public broadband money should go to public networks not corporations that's right. And she wrote a, a, a great lead to the to that story that says a Republican, a libertarian and a Democrat meet over a beer in the small town of Liberty, Maine. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a uh, you know, There's people who want us to believe that doesn't happen anymore. All right. Right. And so that in and of itself actually is 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 is, is cool. Um, but I think what it speaks to, though, is that at the local level, unlike what you see at the federal level and sometimes at the state level, is that. Folks really think that broadband is a utility and they don't have these really partisan debates about whether this is, you know, some socialist project or government owned networks and things of that nature. It's like, look, this is a utility. We all need it. And it's tax dollars that are that that are being doled out in these grant programs. Why would we be giving those to these big corporations? They should be spent on networks that are publicly owned. Yeah, this reminds me of a meeting that Ryan and I went to uh, with uh, LeSueur County in Minnesota. We did a podcast talking about, you know, what we heard from different members of the public, local leaders who are talking about it. And I was 
I was struck there by how many people said, I pay taxes. I pay a lot in taxes. I pay too much in taxes, maybe. <laughs> and uh, and I don't, I don't have broadband. Why is that? And they they link these things together that like this is a an essential utility um, and, and that sort of a thing in ways that I feel like inside the Beltway, uh, they want you to believe that, you know, everyone is like an Ann Randian kind of like the private sector right. needs to do broadband or else this country is going to fall off a cliff, uh, you know, which is just not the case. So. Yeah. I, and I mean, you know, to, to sort of bring it full circle, going back to Bountiful, I mean, my understanding, I've never been to Bount- Bountiful, but from my understanding, it's a pretty conservative uh, community. Peggy Schaefer has been working on this forever. Yeah. So that's what that's what Peggy Schaefer, you know, chimed in to be like, basically, like, I mean, from her description, it sounded like probably, you know, that Democrat at the table is like might be the only one in town. Like this is an area that is very conservative and. And they, you know, I, they get it right. Like they're not, they're not doing this as like, they're not, they don't love government. They just recognize that for some things you need government to do it, or at least some measure of local accountability, which is what I think they're want, looking to get. Right. And also it, it's probably also a recognition that particularly in, in, in more rural areas that the big companies, they're not coming in and building out fiber to those places. Not with, not without a ton of uh, um, subsidies or something. Yeah, like no, I mean that. they're going to get the money in some of these areas, and then uh, you know they they know that they're going to mostly have a uh, a monopoly. And you know what, what's kind of funny is that um, you know I mean I don't know people how much they pay attention. We talked about this a lot in that episode of Connect This from last week, um, uh, episode seventy five. You know, but like the folks at Red Zone who have been all over Maine and uh, and are very active in building wireless, uh, I mean, they really don't like me uh, and, and my preference for fiber in a lot of places. But the funny thing is, is that like whenever we see like Charter and other companies getting this money, like I'm rooting for Red Zone hardcore. Like I want Red Zone to go in there and provide better service at reasonable prices and take as many of those customers as possible. Right. <laughs> My concern is that like some of these companies are not able to serve everyone. And so that's why I'm not rooting for them to get the the money necessarily. Uh, but there's a great discussion about that in the Connect This episode. Um, but, you know, this gets down to a couple of different things. The point of this article in some ways for me was that like the problem of the match and whether or not we're going to see much money going to uh, community entities. Um, You know, for many people who worked on developing the bead project in Congress, they wanted to make sure that local communities would have a say in this and be able to get the money to build their own networks if they wanted to. And one of the things that's standing in the way of this, there's multiple things. And I think, I think that the, the Biden administration and Ed TIA have done a, uh, uh, they've done a great job on behalf of the cable companies of erecting barriers to that vision, even mm. as nearly every person building that barrier actually doesn't even agree with it. Like, Meaning, meaning that, um, the, the sort of the match requirements, it's like the match it, requirement, it, it, the, uh, the letter of credit, the rules in general are so significant that, uh, the big companies will take them. Um, the big companies have the ability to comply, but they probably won't even comply because they know that they never get in trouble for not complying significantly. Right. Um, you know, whether you look back at, at the, um, the connect America fund CAF and the amount of money that went to the big telephone companies, which was a reward for them not having built out. I mean, like, I just, I haven't done this rant in a minute, so <laughs> I'll just note, like 
Like the Connect America Fund was the FCC looking at the United States and saying, who are the most irresponsible companies? Let's give them more money. You know, all these companies that responsibly invested in the past and built out rural networks that have high quality to people, we're not going to give them anything. You know, they're getting some high cost support, but we're not going to give them anything more. We want to give money to the worst companies in America. And then those worst companies in America turn around and did a poor job building it out and didn't meet the rules of the requirement as best we can tell. And nobody cares, right? There's no investigation. Right. I, I suppose theoretically the argument is that, or I, I guess theoretically the, the purpose of having sort of all of these, you know, requirements, these letters of credit and, 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 and uh, match requirements and so on and so forth is, is all sort of driven by this fear. I think of, of Solyndra, you know, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I hope that everyone know. gets that reference. I'm at this point, like you and I are too old, <laughs> which is not even that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, the department. As a matter of fact, if they if they were around for calf two, they were around for cylinder. <laughs> or a calf, I should say. Yeah. So, so Solyndra is where the Department of Energy gave a bunch of money to a company that was going to revolutionize uh, solar uh, photovoltaics and didn't work and yeah. big hearings and embarrassment and whatnot. And uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, I think so. So one thing that is, I went down this massive rat hole, but the key thing that I wanted to hit was that like the match challenge is an issue. Now, New Mexico is doing something cool, or at least talking about something cool. Um, we're deeply concerned that, uh, where there is a match, there's a match requirement, right? So if you want to get bead dollars, let's, let's say for a second that you got a $10 million project, you go to bead, you put it in an application and you say, here's a $10 million project under the rules you have to use 2.5 million of your own dollars or in kind in order to be eligible for that, right? 25% match. So Mm -hmm. um, now if you were to say, I'll do a $5 million match, then many states will prioritize you and and you're more likely to get the reward, which allows the state to then go out and spend the money that they saved from not having to, from the match that you brought in that's extra, they can Mm -hmm. put that money to other people and get them connected. So there's a clear reason to do that. However, if you're a Pueblo in New Mexico, which is what uh, the tribes are called there, uh, the Native American tribes, uh, they're not going to come in and be like, I can do a 50 percent match. You know, they're right. they're they're working hard to get up that 25 percent match in some cases. Not all Pueblos are alike. Not all tribes are alike. Some have the resources to go higher. Many most do not. Um, so one of the things that New Mexico is talking about is um, a I think they're at least uh, Sandeep who runs their uh, the 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 broadband office he um i forget exactly what his role is i hope i didn't just overstate it uh but congratulations on your promotion if i did (laughs) (laughs) sandeep who's given a lot of thought to this uh you know he gave a thoughtful answer in an event we recently had where he was just like look we're not gonna like penalize someone that can barely do the match if we know they're coming from a hard situation we're gonna try to match the match um in terms of like match an expectation with a reasonable amount so the reason, whole reason I just spent all that time doing that is because New Mexico is talking about using state dollars to help provide the match funds for some of the Pueblos that don't have the ability to do the 25% themselves, right? Oh, right. That's, cool. so like, that's mm-hmm. great. That's what mm-hmm. we should see, right? Is like the mm-hmm. state can use other funds to match the bead requirement. That's what Maine should be doing here. Maine shouldn't be making this big requirement there. That's sort of the idea of what they want. Through a revenue bond that the state would be involved in. Right. So, you know, they basically create this, you know, payback plan to... That where they could use a portion of the subscriber fees to pay it back. Mm-hmm. You got to get creative in trying to solve some of these problems because it ain't going to be easy for a number of these communities, even in states where, like Maine, it's sort of set up or at least it's favorable to a community, you know, a community broadband approach. 
Right. The last thing that came to mind on this again is that like I feel like people are under the mistaken impression that we're all rowing in the same direction. And we are not rowing in the same direction. (laughs) When the, to go back to CAF in Vermont, the state had some money and it made it, I think it it gave it to EC Fiber, the Central uh, Vermont Fiber Network. That's really just terrific inspiration. Um, They are in an area where they compete with Fairpoint, which is now consolidated. At that point, it was a company called Fairpoint. It's the incumbent telephone company for the area. Um, mm. And and they got calf dollars and they had to figure out where to put their, their money and where they're going to build. And um, EC Fiber starts building in this town. And what do they see? Immediately, Fairpoint's crews are there to use the calf dollars there too. Because you know, they don't care about connecting the people that don't have a connection. They're worried about losing market share. Right. And so like, I mean, this just goes back. If you look at the rural electrification administration, when we started embracing cooperatives for rural infrastructure, the monopolies, the privately owned companies, they started building these things called spite lines, which were like designed to, as this article that Carolyn Campbell um, notes, there's a history that the, in Maine they feel of like the cable company kind of going through the middle of town, taking a lot of the the customers that are easy to get, and then just leaving everyone else behind. That's what the electric companies did. They were called spite lines. But like as in, like I'm doing this out of spite. <laughs> yeah, because the idea was that you would kill a business case for a co-op by taking wow. any of the de- you just take the demand with no intention of building out the rest of the area. Like, mm. and so. I just, I think it's really important. Like I, you know, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance strongly believes in local for-profit companies. Uh, we think it, we think that business is important. We want to see competition. And at the same time, we cannot be confused by thinking that for-profit is like a cohesive ideology, right? Mm-hmm. Like extractive Wall Street controlled companies that do these it's sort different of things. Than, yeah. yeah, they're different. And so like, we're not rowing in the same direction. Like the big companies, they have people in them who do care about this right like comcast yes. has people that care a lot about, about low-income folks and, and internet essentials and things like that the mm-hmm. company itself it does not care about it right <laughs> the company's trying to figure out how do we increase our return to shareholders over time and that's our system they're not bad for doing that like and if know, this and if the ceo did not uh act accordingly he <laughs> wouldn't be there long yeah. It's a retirement plan. It can be as soon as you stop prioritizing the shareholders, like that's a retirement plan. Uh, I mean, I have to say that like a lot of those retirements actually look pretty nice. <laughs> Better than anything you or I were going to be expecting, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I'm pretty certain of that. So um, so anyway, I think, you know, it's exciting to see that sort of a thing, um, you know, and and I and it's great as well to see that that political mix, because I think, you know, a lot of people uh, are frustrated with the politics of our time. And uh, but I think at the local level, uh, often people can still talk to each other about this stuff and rage uh, about uh, whatever they want to rage about. Yeah, it's actually kind of refreshing in the in the political environment that we're in, that there are still some things that, you know, there's a uh, a real cross section of folks, regardless of, you know, political ideology or how they may vote in terms of, uh, you know, political candidates. But when it comes to broadband at the local level, you don't see, you know, you just don't see that kind of partisan divisiveness where it's like one side is accusing the other of being, you know, evil. Drinking the blood of children. Yeah. Drinking the blood of children (laughs) and killing puppies or whatever. All right, man. That's a, that's how we're going to leave it. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) On, on killing puppies. That's, that's, that's a rough way to end.
there's a there's a lot of good stuff happening out there. We're seeing a lot of communities that are getting their um, getting their plans together, doing a, a good job. Um, you know, uh, so and you know, in this environment with Beat, I mean, certainly, it, you know, it's fueling all of this um, interest um, in in local communities as to how they can you know take advantage of this moment and and build out better broadband in their communities. And I also kind of like, you know, we've had a couple of stories recently where there are communities that are managing to finance and build these networks, even without uh, federal grant money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I, it's, it, to me, it's a granted, it doesn't mean that any, any and every community can do that, but it certainly does say that, you know, because I think there's some folks that I've bumped into in Massachusetts who kind of feel like, well, if we don't get bead money, you know, there's nothing we can do. And it's that's not the case. I mean, there there are other ways to finance and build networks than than hoping that you're going to get a grant from. Um, yeah, people are too focused on three years from now. Like there's longer term plans. And, you know, hey, we all want it tomorrow. Um, but uh, we might be able to get something out in the short term, like a fixed wireless solution that then will help build the business case for a high quality, uh, you know, higher quality fiber connection or something like that. Um, but I, I do think people need to recognize there's a, a longer term uh, angle of this. And uh, frankly, when it comes to actual digital equity, you know, the tens of millions of people for whom the they already have a network available to them, that is going to mm-hmm. take local investment. We need the states and the localities to step up because I don't see the federal government doing much on that anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really going to be something where we need local governments to to prioritize this in the way that they pretend they have been. Now that's a good way to end this. <laughs> all right. We <laughs> hope you all have a have a great week and uh, we'll catch you again next time. Thank you, Sean. All right. Thanks. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle. Licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening.